Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Arts Academy for today's Library Lunchtime Lecture. My name is Amy Hughes and I'm Assistant Librarian here. Today's lecture on, and our current exhibition on the antiquarian, artist and former Vice President of the Academy, George Petrie, has been organised to mark the 150th anniversary of his death on the 18th of January 1866. I'm delighted to welcome our speaker today, Professor Tom Dunn, um, who is Professor Emeritus of History at University College Cork. Professor Dunn has published widely on Irish culture and politics, focusing mainly in recent years on Irish art from Barry to Maclean. He was co-founder and co-editor um, of the Irish Review and his book Rebellions, Memoir, Memory and 1798, published in 2004, won the Ewart Big Prize. He has co-curated a number of major exhibitions at the Crawford Art Gallery, Cork, and contributed, contributed an essay to its 2004 catalogue, George Petrie, The Rediscovery of Ireland's Past, edited by Peter Murray. Today, Professor Dunn will give a talk entitled, From Dublin Westward, Petrie, Clonmacnoise and Aaron. This talk will explore how Petrie combined his antiquarian, artistic and commercial interests in a series of patriotic drawings and watercolours of Clonmac Noise and Aaron. These come initially from a trip he made westward in 1821. Thank you very much, Professor Dunn. Thank you, Amy, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here in this wonderful place, uh, and of course, very appropriate place, as Amy has kind of said, for looking at some aspects of George Petrie's remarkable career. Um, I haven't seen the exhibition yet. I look forward to it. Uh, what I'm talking about today, as you'll see, is uh, related in some way to it. Petrie, uh, the son of the Dublin-based miniatures painter of Scottish uh, descent, uh, here, um, James, this is uh, a detail of the lovely little portrait of George when he was 20-ish or thereabouts, maybe at the time of his marriage, um, a bit later, um, was a product of the Dublin Society Drawing School uh, and is best known, I suppose, or was taught himself mainly throughout his career as primarily an artist, that was his training uh, and his artistic work focused a lot, as we'll see, on detailed topographical and antiquarian subjects. And crucially for his income, both early and late in his career, and indeed crucial, I think, to the kind of art he was to produce, one of the things I'll be kind of arguing for today, as an illustrator of tourist guides. But of course, he was much more than that. Uh, he is better known now, in many ways, as an antiquarian, noted for rigorous scholarship and a penchant for controversy, particularly in his decisive intervention in the long-running debate over Round Towers, published as part of his most important and influential book, The Ecclesiastical Architecture of Ireland, Anterior to the Anglo-Norman Invasion. And that last bit, Anterior to the Anglo-Norman Invasion, as we see, is crucial. He also made a remarkably 
uh, remarked things many of us made an important collection of Irish music following on bunting and he founded a popular newspaper to make the fruits of antiquarian research widely available all of that I think would be enough for any man but he was also a formidable cultural leader and facilitator across the range of his activities playing a major role in the topographical section of the Portland Survey developing the antiquities section, particularly the Royal Irish Academy, but contributing hugely to the Academy, and not least this library, um, developing that and promoting Irish art as a long-time president of the Royal Hibernian Academy. All of this is covered in Peter Murray's splendid study of Petrie, uh, where, as uh, was pointed out, I have an essay on the Clonmacnoise paintings, uh, and in which the great Dutch scholar, Hugh Blearson, uh, has an essay, and it puts Petrie's career in European perspective, claiming, and again, it's something that not many, maybe Irish scholars would think like this, but I think it's very true. He says that more than any other individual in 19th century Ireland, Petrie traced the cultural profile by which Ireland is still identified today. So it's a very large claim uh, for his importance in terms of cultural history. Informing this remarkable range of cultural activity was a practical sense of patriotism, focused especially on countering the negative colonial stereotype of Ireland as primitive or barbarous and promoting the idea of a sophisticated, cultured, pre-colonial Ireland. This built on the work of 18th century antiquarians, notably Charles O'Connor, and was articulated also in different ways by Lady Morgan uh, and Thomas Moore in literature, by Daniel O'Connell and Young Ireland in politics, all of them strongly influenced by antiquarian writings. Petrie, indeed, tried to make that tradition more scholarly, seeing himself as an example of what he called the philosophical historian. And indeed, he's an important bridge to modern, if you like, uh, academic scholarship. Davis's appeal for a national art to support his cultural patriotism came closest to realisation, I've argued, in the key paintings by Petrie, especially of Clonmacnoise. Noise. Petrie wanted, in his own words, quote, to lend even a feeble hand towards the ultimate removal of hostile prejudices against the Celtic race among whom it was my chance to be cast. This is a very interesting formulation in relation to his, uh, the extent of his Irish as opposed to Scottish identity, for example. However, we will see that he also projected romantic notions of Celtic primitivism onto the contemporary inhabitants of Arran. On completing his course in the drawing schools, Petrie and his fellow students and lifelong friends, Francis Danby and James Arthur O'Connor, who became much better known as artists than he did, travelled to London, and he was very influenced, they all were, but Petrie especially, I think, by the English vogue for the picturesque in art. Uh, and uh, on the, the slide there now, uh, at the bottom one, Finola Kane, Ireland and the Picturesque, uh, is a very good recent 
survey of that whole movement. The picturesque related to seeing landscapes as in a picture and stressed the natural and the rough, for example, rather than the sophisticated and the sublime. Robert Southey in 1807 satirized what he called the flocks of fashion. Migrating each summer, he said, some to mineralogize, some to botanize, some to take views of the country, all to study the picturesque, a new science for which a new language has been formed. And Fenola Kane surveys the writings of people like Gilpin and so on um, that were so widely uh, canvassed at the time. On his travels in, in, in <coughs> across the water, Petrie sketched extensively in Wales, as he had previously done in the environs of Dublin, especially Wicklow, and as he was to do in a series of journeys through the Irish landscape right throughout his career. And when turning his drawings into paintings, he used watercolours all through his life. Something that was quite controversial. He was president of the Royal Vernon Academy, one of whose principal, uh, uh, what would you call it, criteria for membership was that you had to paint in oils. He, he was its president. And in the end, of course, very uh, sad part of his life where he was actually supplanted uh, and had to withdraw. Uh, but he was a watercolorist all his life, and for a long period, including even into the uh, early decades of the 19th century, watercolors were considered a kind of an inferior uh, kind of art compared to oil. But they were terrifically good as the basis for engravings. Uh, and what Petrie's normal way of proceeding was to sketch, to turn the sketches into watercolours, the watercolours then being turned by others into engravings, published mainly in the series of guides designed for the burgeoning tourist market. The fact that so much of his art was made with this market in mind reinforced its picturesque nature and complicated its patriotic focus. He was under pressure, for example, to put more figures in his landscapes uh, in order, as one publisher told him, to give the scene life and bustle. Tourism, as O'Kane points out, was also, quote, a stage in the appropriation and colonization of territory. And I would argue that tourist landscapes, to call them that, were particularly instances of the colonial nature of what was the most distinctive in Irish landscape art. Thus, for example, the picturesque focus on ruins in the landscape, a major part of the picturesque all throughout Europe, had a different meaning in Ireland than in England. In the imperial centre, the history that ruins evoked was settled, distant and nostalgic, so that in English art, they were increasingly used to represent private emotion, as in Constable's famous Hadley Castle from the same period. That's the oil sketch made. And that uh, relates to the death of his wife uh, not long after they were married. And they had gone to see it when, you know, when they got married first and so on. So the ruin represents private pain. Thomas Crofton Croker's joke that the various guides, including indeed his own, featuring ruins, he said, should all be dedicated to Cromwell, as he had created most of them. And this had particular relevance here, 
In his painting of Ton McNoise, for example, Petrie inaccurately, and knew exactly what he was doing, included the ruins, uh, the nearby ruined Norman Castle, destroyed in one of a series of depredations of the site during the colonial wars of the 16th and 17th century. It's, inac- it's, it's inaccurate to have it there, but it made an extra point about the ruins in general, which he mainly focused on, which was the ecclesiastical ones. And he wrote of the Tonmac Noise site in general, Petrie did, its ruined buildings call forth national associations and ideas. And that is the big contrast with the English ruin in the picturesque uh, tradition. However, as we will see, he omitted this ruin in the drawing of the site published as a tourist guide the previous year. His marriage in 1819 made Petrie's involvement in the commercial art market all the more necessary, and over the following two years he published an extensive series of illustrations in Thomas Kitson Cromwell's two-volume excursions to Ireland. I think they're included in the exhibition here. Mainly of public buildings, and the ruins of Dublin and its environs. Dublin being, of course, the great tourist magnet then as now. A few years later, for G.N. Wright's Ireland Illustrated, he produced this remarkable view of a devout Catholic congregation in the Carmelite Priory in Clarendon Street. And it's almost unique, I think, in the art uh, of its time. Sometimes Petrie was accused by Protestant ultras as a covert Roman Catholic because he employed Catholics, for instance, in the Ordnance Survey. But he was, as his friend William Stokes pointed out, in fact, a committed, if uh, not very uh, outspoken as such, Anglican. His positive portrayal of the Catholic devotion at the time of the Catholic emancipation was to be a recurring motif, as in this early engraving of a Clon McNoise scene of the McCarthy's Church and Tower Clon McNoise in Cromwell, where again you have a little devout group uh, outside the, um, the, the tower. But I think, as we'll see, this had a political rather than a religious significance. In 1821, he proposed a book on the Iron Islands to James Norris Brewer, who was preparing a series of guides to be called The Beauties of Ireland, which began to appear in 1825, with illustrations by Petrie, but none of his of Aaron. Brewer rejecting his idea on the basis of Aaron's obscurity, as he said, and insignificance. And indeed, it was then little known, except for the accountant, by the antiquarian Roderick O'Flaherty in Irkhanacht, and difficult to get to. Heading west, as he told Brewer, in search of the ancient and the picturesque, Petrie was aware of venturing into the unknown. I was described by his friend and biographer Stokes as the discoverer of the islands, at least, Stokes adds, from an antiquities point of view. It's very difficult, as Peter Murray pointed out, to get an accurate picture of Petrie's sketching tours in the 1820s. But it seems clear that he visited Iron a year earlier, in 1820, and that this trip had also involved extensive work on the very rich and almost equally unexplored monastic site 
of Tonmac Noise on the Shannon. His main work in Tonmac Noise was in detailed measurement of its ruins, the recording of its architectural features, and of over 300 grave inscriptions, which never publishes a book after his death. It was Tom McNoise, he told the Commission of uh, Inquiry into the Ordnance Memoir in 1843, that made him an antiquarian. And his research there was crucial to his major publication on ecclesiastical architecture around Tars. But he also did some general sketches, like that one, using them um, to produce this small, intense watercolour some years later. Uh, and I'll be coming back to that uh, several times. But as you can see, it features uh, pilgrims uh, around the, the various uh, sacred aspects of the site, if you like, uh, devout, uh, calm, and there are elements of it, as I say, I'll keep coming back to. Twenty years later, he, he had engraved one of the sketches, uh, sorry, Around the same time, he produced this very different drawing engraved for Brewer's uh, Beauties of Ireland. This is from the same period, and the contrast is quite remarkable. Uh, and I'll come back to that too. But this is a tourist landscape. Um, and uh, 20 years later, in, in the only book, if you like, that he controlled the images in, that's the Ecclesiastical Architecture, um, he included this early drawing, which is clearly one of the bases for the watercolour. Uh, but it's interesting, that would probably not have passed muster in the same way for one of the tourist, commercial tourist guides. And a commercial uh, a comparison of these three images would really deserve a, a separate talk. But one can note, for example, how the drama of the watercolour was developed from what is likely to have been an early sketch. Um, the contrast between the romantic intensity of the watercolour and the cool, uh, if you like, um, commercial picturesque of the engraving produced for Brewer. Totally different kind of aesthetic there, different kind of feel to it. Um, the watercolour was produced uh, for as an album, um, and commissioned by a Mrs. Haldeman. Turner and Danby were among the artists also who uh, gave, gave it uh, a piece for it. Um, and uh, as I say, the, the romantic sensibility of that compared to the commercial sensibility, that is quite striking. And the engraving features tourists. There's, you know, these are tourists visiting the scene. Uh, a few locals are lounging around uh, somebody's getting directions and the, the locals are seen in kind of like little matchstick men in the middle there's a funeral and Petrie in writing about the site to his wife talks about the, the different days in which funerals came to the site because it was still used as a burial place uh, and that the, the local people with their funerals created, in many ways, the kind of uh, religious aura and culture around the site that is celebrated uh, in the watercolour. 
and indeed then the engraving omits the ruined castle, is, is situated in such a way, it, it leaves that out, which instead he used as a separate illustration uh, in Cromwell's excursions. So you can see even in that kind of uh, brief look the different demands, different sensibilities, different judgments he made, artistic judgments he made, when you move from uh, the watercolour to the, the guide uh, and uh, this will be a recurring theme in what I'm going to talk about. The title, um, The Last Circuit of Pilgrims at Clonmac Noise, refers to the pilgrimage each June on the feast day of the monastery's 6th century founder, St. Chiron. That this is the last circuit that is around the points of particular devotion as the sun sets on the river Shannon. But Clonmacnoise was more than a great religious site, being the burial place also, as he was very aware of native kings, including the high king at the time of the Norman invasion, after which it was repeatedly sacked and looted, and thus a symbol of colonial aggression. Dominated by the great round tower, the painting also featured the highly decorated cross of the scriptures in the background, and a corner, which I'm sorry, this is slightly cropped. There is actually also a corner uh, of the cathedral, all dated by Petrie to pre-Norman times. Very much part of his argument, the Normans didn't bring civilization. We had an advanced civilization uh, before they came. Reinforcing this emphasis on a great native culture is a close connection, which is very unusual in contemporary British or Irish art, between the ruins and the devout pilgrims who, he commented in his journal, are so identified with the character of the ruins that they may truly be said to belong to each other. Not only that, these peasants were also connected in his mind to the great aristocratic past of the site. And they had, he said, come for the purposes that brought others here for more than a thousand years. This connection between people and place, between uh, present and past, like the favourable portrayal of peasant behaviour, here they are, uh, all devout and calm and uh, you know, very different from the colonial stereotype. It's a positive image of the Irish national character and identity. And in the depictions of the poor we find in a great deal of Irish landscape art in the late 18th, 18th century and throughout much of the 19th, you get a very different depiction of the Irish poor. Uh, in marked contrast to the depictions of the rural poor in English landscape art, both of them been seen as projections of national character. Irish landscape art in the 18th and much of the 19th century has almost no examples of the settled agricultural landscape that in fact uh, marked much of the country and that was particularly strikingly central to English landscape art, especially in the early decades of the 19th century. The agricultural landscape was seen as a paradigm of imperial greatness, of a settled culture and economy, uh, the yeoman of England uh, and so on being celebrated. And it's a particular example of it is this well-known painting by uh, George Stubbs, 
uh, you know, by the horse, um, of, uh, you know, south of England, English agriculture labourers, well-dressed, uh, harvesting grain, uh, overseen by an overseer on a fine horse, and with the village spire uh, in the background behind the trees. This is an image of England that was strongly promoted in art, not just by subs, but by uh, Constable, for example, by the early Turner, and by a large George Moreland, by a large number of English artists at the time. Irish landscapes, by contrast, frequently depicted primitive people in wild scenery, often featuring ruins. And the most remarkable example of this, and very likely a goad to Petrie, although I have no evidence for this, was Joseph Peacock's pattern at Glendalough, which is in the Ulster Museum. Uh, an enormous crowded canvas, as you can see, uh, actually quite a small painting, but it features drunken, violent pilgrims fighting in distant uh, ruins, which are very hard to distinguish properly. But the whole, you can't see it, I'm sorry with the PowerPoint, but the whole centre ground is a faction fight. Uh, scores of men with cudgels uh, fighting in this sacred place. And the foreground is all, uh, you know, people buying and selling all sorts of goods. And in the corner here is a pub. And in the middle is a ballad singer spreading sedition. So, you know, you've got, that is in many ways, a kind of in a very exaggerated way, but it's, a lot of the features in it are very common in Irish landscape art at the period. Uh, and I think what Petrie is doing in many ways is reversing the stereotype, showing devout pilgrims in this calm river landscape at home in the ecclesiastical centre of their culture. This is a second version of the Clon Macnoy's Last Circuit. Uh, it was, it's a much larger painting. Petrie hoped it would make a popular print. Uh, and its mood, allowing for the fading of the paint, seems more serene, perhaps, I've argued before, reflecting the political calm after the storm that seemed to threaten in Catholic emancipation. This painting brought into clearer focus by rearranging their comparative relationship a little some of the architectural features used to make his compelling argument in the ecclesiastical architecture of Ireland. So you see uh, more of the cathedral, you see the ornament, ornate door, you see the cross more clearly. And as I say, in many ways, this is an artistic argument or a companion to his great book on the ecclesiastical architecture, which uses a lot of, of uh, John McNoy's examples. examples. The compelling argument in the ecclesiastical architecture of Ireland uh, is against those many Protestant antiquarians like Edward Ledwidge, who had claimed that the Irish conquered by the Normans were a barbarous people. Another example of the same kind of uh, political statement in art uh, is James Barry's Baptism in the King and Cashel, the oil sketches in the National Gallery, and that will feature in their forthcoming big exhibition at the end of this year. This painting also included in the foreground the artist's cloak, his sketch of the round tower that we, was the basis of the engraving we saw earlier, 
and possibly himself. But it makes the identification of the painter with the scene particularly powerful and poignant. It also echoes his quiet presentation of pilgrims at St. Bridget's Well at Scanner County Clare around the same period. There is a traditional pattern they in this site as well at the end of July every year. And this is, was no, notorious for attracting a large iron contingent and like the Glendalough pattern had come under church interdict. But in Petrie's painting, there is no drinking, fighting or milling crowds around itinerant hawkers, but only the quiet devotion again of poor pilgrims, all women, in their picturesque clothes, which together with the romantic scenery and the simple indication of the antiquity of the site give a positive, unthreatening image of the Irish poor in their culture. However, it's interesting again that in these iron sketches and paintings, uh, Petrie did not include any picturesque islanders. The romance of Ireland's west coast was established in fiction shortly after the Union uh, by the success of Lady Morgan's The Wild Irish Girl, published in 1806, uh, which you could call a tourist novel as well. It's a way it, it introduces the English reader, published in London, of course, mainly for an English readership, it introduces an English reader to, uh, to Ireland favourably. With his returned Anglo-Irish hero Mortimer, son of an absentee landlord, giving a sympathetic introduction to the country and its picturesque poor. He was impressed by Dublin. All of these novels, there's a whole series of them, start in Dublin, how wonderful Dublin is, how beautiful. Of course, it was the modern city and the second city of the empire. But he was advised to head west, which he did rapidly, uh, as the northwest coast of Connacht is the classic ground of Ireland. So I think it's the first statement of that kind. The native Irish made it the asylum of their sufferings, so I shall have a fair opportunity of beholding the Irish character in all its primeval ferocity. Of course, he finds a very different picture, but that was the image he was, the, that the book was combating. Mortimer was a guest in the semi-ruined castle of the dispossessed Prince of Inishmore. Uh, he disguised himself as an artist, fascinated by the picturesque nature of the castle on the edge of the ocean, and is instructed in Irish history and antiquities, and even indeed to some degree language and music, but a very sophisticated, far from wild Irish girl, Lorvina. In a footnote, Lady Morgan referenced Dunluce Luce Castle in Antrim as her inspiration for the castle of Inishmore. And here it is depicted by Petrie in Wright's Guide. But the romance of the West Coast was not much celebrated in Irish landscape art in the first half of the, indeed for much of the 19th century, as it was in fiction. Another famous fictional, very romantic one, is uh, Maturin's The Milesian Chief, published in 1812. In part, perhaps, this was because it lacked enough history. In words, ruins. The ruins that feature so strongly in the Irish picturesque. It may also have been due to the fact that the West was underdeveloped and not involved in Atlantic trade, as, for example, Cork was. 
resulting in a very strong tradition of maritime art in Cork. Uh, and this is, again, modern uh, example with the, the Sirius, the first steamship to cross the Atlantic from the Cork uh, Steamship Company. Nor was the west of Ireland's west coast uh, on the well-established tourist trade. Unlike the much-painted east coast around Dublin, Killarney in the south, and the north coast around the Giants Causeway. And here we have uh, a Petri Giants Causeway, uh, and uh, I think maybe even be based on uh, Nichols. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if Petri actually got the Giants Causeway. Many Irish tourism landscapes like Parscourt in Killarney and Killarney, as Finola Kane has shown, were exploited by entrepreneurial landowners, but they also featured romantic scenery of wild places outside their control. And I want to suggest that Petrie's Dunangus painting can partly be categorised as a tourist landscape, but one also having some elements of what may be described as national and indeed specifically anti-colonial art, which were more fully articulated in the companion piece in the same period at Clonmac Noise. When he finally got to Inishmore, Petrie wrote, I discovered a class of monuments, which, like the inscriptions at Clonmac Noise, had not been at all previously noticed. Curious stone forts, beehive-shaped stone houses, all built without cement, like this one here, uh, the, uh, from Aaron, and also from the ecclesiastical architecture from his own book. In a talk in 1834 that the Royal Irish Academy on Military Architecture in Ireland, previous to the English invasion, the same emphasis, he again stressed his intention to refute the views of colonial writers that Ireland lacked stone castles and fort before the Normans. Aaron gave many examples of this, with Dunangus, of course, as its crowning glory. Massively, of course, exaggerated. It is indeed a very dramatic place, but uh, it's made extraordinarily more so in many ways here. It was, he pronounced, quote, probably the most magnificent barbaric monument in Europe, dating it to the, around the birth of Christ and ascribing it, as O'Flaherty had done, to the mythical Fir Bullock. In fact, uh, we now think it was built around 1100 BC, and we still have no idea who built it. Petrie took detailed measurements and drawings on Arne, where his host was the resident magistrate, the hospital, hospitable Mr. O'Flaherty. Petrie was also fascinated by the monoglot Irish-speaking inhabitants of Arran, by their, quote, primitive simplicity and pristine purity despite something he worried about, the possible bad influence of outsiders who were building a lighthouse when he visited first. Brave and hardy, he called them, simple and innocent, the islanders, quote, exhibit the virtues of the Irish character at its best. There were, he wrote, a fair specimen of the ancient and present wild Irish. And of what the Irish generally might be, you can read between the lines, if they lived a simple life remote from the modern world. 
which I think he would have preferred they did. It's important to realize that Petrie did not speak Irish, but relied on the local, and this first visits on the local priest and magistrate to interpret for him. Also like Moore, like Davis, like Ferguson, Petrie accepted elements of the stereotype he was dedicated to rebutting, not least a belief in Irish national character as a construct of contrasts, sorrow and mirth, piety and superstition, hospitality and treachery, and so on. Peachy, like Moore, also applied this to the music he collected and to the Irish landscape, which he wrote, quote, has a sort of national individuality due, he wrote, to the striking force of contrast and to the relics of past epochs. Dunangus Fort, in Ishmore Iron Islands, is both an antiquarian landscape celebrating the dramatic proof of an ancient and advanced Irish past and a tourist landscape which he had planned, without any doubt, hopefully to be the basic of a, basis of an engraving for some future guide uh, that never happened. And one of a series of Western landscapes that he did after the trip, uh, for example, the 12 pins in Connemara. Um, that's a fascinating one because I heard Finola Canis' symposium not so long ago give an account of uh, landscapes commissioned by the Marcus of Sligo who was of course a major Connemara landowner commissioned from Petrie's old friend James Arthur O'Connor and the Marcus of Sligo wanted a planned road into Connemara included because he saw Connemara as an area for development Petrie was against such modernising schemes and this is a self-contained there's no road into this. This is kind of a self-contained landscape. As he told Thomas Larkham, supervisor of the Ordnance Survey, these schemes would result in the destruction of the antiquities and of the primitive simplicity of the natives. So that, for example, quote, the costume of the women, so exquisitely beautiful and simple, exactly as if they had stepped out of pictures of Raphael or Murillo, would be replaced, he said, by, quote, cheap cotton, ground, sorry, cheap cotton gowns so odious to lovers of the picturesque. And, in, you know, this is um, various artists saw the West when they began coming there in, in that way. Yet apart from the St. Bridges Well painting, he did not paint picturesque Western peasants as his friend Frederick Burton was to do, although one of his architectural drawings in, in one of them of the West, he included... Uh, a group of pious uh, pilgrims uh, as at St. Bridget's well and again that's from his own uh, book instead his iron painting uh, included um, tourists with a picnic basket very different sensibility again different approach different kind of market in mind so he's making a point about this extraordinary antique fort uh, and what it says about ancient Ireland and at the same time he's basically saying come and bring a picnic which is, you know, it's, a, it's something I'm grateful to be asked to give this talk because it's made me think about these things in ways I hadn't um, before and the whole business of tes uh, tourists, tourism's impact on art Petrie returned to Ireland 
in 1856 um, with the ethnographical section of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. And the group included some of his friends, the Gaelic scholars, John O'Donovan and Eugene O'Curry, the painter, Frederick William Burton, Petrie's biographer, William Stokes, Sir Samuel Ferguson, and the provost of Trinity College Dublin, who presided at a splendid lunch inside the fort. Watched by, quote, numbers of the peasantry in their picturesque costumes, Petrie described. Some of the islanders put on a display of their perilous descent of the cliff uh, for the purpose of fouling. Petrie was upset at the utter ruin of these singularly interesting remains. This is Petrie in old age, around this time, uh, by Mulrennan. Um, in the 34 years since his first visit. And he got O'Donovan and O'Curry to address the locals in Irish, quote, exhorting them to preserve the old monuments. Flann O'Brien would have done something with that. Petrie stayed on for two weeks doing further antiquarian research in Ireland after the rest of this distinguished group left. They were essentially, you could call them cultural tourists, as are many who visit the fort today in large numbers. While it was intended to appeal to such visitors, Dunangus Fort uh, in Ishmore, Iron Islands, is as much an antiquarian as a tourist painting, and as such, I think, is profoundly patriotic. It makes the point, as a Tron McNoy's painting did, that Ireland had an advanced indigenous civilization long before the 12th century conquest. Its focus is on the ancient fort rather than the people. The people are incidental and they're a little, they're part of what publishers will make him do with, with the guides, uh, engravings. A little bit of movement, a little bit of human interest in the scene. Landscapes with people in them sold far better than landscapes without guides demanded that this kind of human presence was there. And the style of this has elements of the sublime, of course, as well as the picturesque. In the Tlalmac Noise painting, the people are as important as the architectural remains and are presented in a way that challenges the colonial stereotype of the Irish as backwards, lazy and violent. Yet Petrie's written views of the Iron Islanders reflected another stereotype of the native Irish, that of an idealized and exoticized primitivism that was a key trope of Irish romanticism from Lady Morgan to Sing and beyond. Petrie's paintings make us reflect, certainly make me reflect, on the connections between romanticism, tourism, and nationalism, or national identity, which continues... Uh, right down to the present in many ways uh, to affect Irish art and culture. And you can look at the way in which, for instance, Paul Henry's paintings of the West have come to represent Ireland in a particular way in the way Ireland is marketed abroad. Uh, and in some ways they're in a continuation. Uh, but they are also, I think, colonial landscapes in the sense that the tourist market uh, and the way Ireland presented itself to incomers was dominated by the fact that the incomers at that time were 
almost entirely English. And so you have a colony representing itself to the imperial centre in a way that creates all sorts of tensions and complexities. It happens in literature as well, but I think the way it happens in art is maybe more subtle in some ways, but it's something that's thrown up by the remarkable career of this very remarkable man. Thank you very much.